My name's Johnny. Um, I'm one of the leaders of the church here, as uh, some of you will know. But if you're here with us for the first time today, we don't often come to Church Central. Great to have you here. Um, today's one of our big questions mornings, slightly different to how we'd normally do on a Sunday, um, which you'll see kind of if, if you've not been to one of these before. Again, I'll explain that as we go along. But we're looking at the uh, question today is how can anyone believe in a dead man rising? Now, I'm going to be I'm sure it's not, it won't be a surprise, but who, which dead man could he be talking about here? I don't think that's, that's the case. But let's start with a different dead man for a second to start before I get on to the one I want to talk about. Um, about a month ago, uh, a video went viral in which a South African pastor uh, pretended to resurrect a man from the dead. <laughs> that was a great response. Did anyone see this video? Okay, who heard of this? Put your hand up. Has anyone seen the video? Put your hand up. Okay, there's a few of us. Right. Uh, to fill us all in, Pastor Alf Lukau of Alleluia Ministries in the video. We've got a picture here. He's seen, it's an open air setting. There's a crowd of people around him. Uh, and in the coffin, very shiny black coffin, there is a very well-dressed uh, young man uh, who is largely motionless in the coffin. Um, and about the guy prays over the top of him. Uh, and after a minute or so, the guy kind of sits up gets out looking rather shocked, uh, and eats some food. I think that's how the video goes, if I remember rightly. Now, as I maybe alluded to a second ago, there are several indications in the video that this may be, let's say, not authentic in that sort of way. And many other things have come out since it happened that would suggest definitely, yes, this is a, uh, this is a publicity stunt, uh, really. And, uh, but having said that, and it might seem, if you watch the video, you think, wow, this is incredibly, in some ways, quite silly. It, it hit a nerve. And it went viral quite quickly. There's a, uh, largely on the African continent, but also elsewhere, the hashtag resurrection challenge took over Twitter for a short time. Okay. Now, again, hands up. Did anyone see any of the videos that were put on where people were faking resurrections? Okay. Most of it's rubbish. There's a great one involving a resurrected chicken. That is particularly funny, but um, I will let you go look at that if you'd like to. Um, so it hit a nerve. When something goes viral, it's not just, oh, well, that's just a silly thing of the day. There's something in there that gets at people. And what was the nerve that this video hit? Well, I think for some it was outrage, and I think that would be justified in many ways. There was an exploitative nature to this whole thing. that was It wasn't very funny uh, at all, really. But really, that was drowned out by the different response, which was the almost universal response was total ridicule for what was going on. Um, And if that ridicule could be summed up in a sentence, I think the sentence would be the title of today's talk. How can anyone believe in a dead man rising? So, in a sense, entering the cultural conversation as we are, it sets up our talk perfectly. I'm aware that at the same point, it kind of sets the bar a little bit to the challenge we have with this talk because this is, not a, this is a question that is loaded against what I'm going to be putting forward today because I want to uh, agree with the songs that we've sung today and this will come as no surprise to you, I'm sure, uh, that I believe uh, in a dead man rising. I, I believe in that. And it's not a, a guy in South Africa in early 2019. It's uh, a man in Jerusalem in the first century and his name was Jesus. And let's just sum in, it's, it's fantastic, we, we've sung this stuff, and for some of you as Christians, the stuff we sung today would have been very much, yes, this is a reminder, it's great to kind of remember the things that are really important to me, um, but for some of you who aren't Christians, you may have found it, you might have not wanted to sing for a whole number of reasons, you might have thought, wait a minute, these songs, I, I'm not sure I believe that, in fact, some of these things 
are reasonably extreme. This isn't just small things, a resurrection and all of this sort of stuff. But let's sum it all up. And we sung, I think, all of this uh, in some way. But this is what I believe, and this is what Christians throughout the years uh, would have believed and across the world today. I believe that Jesus... Um, who died by crucifixion on the first Good Friday morning, uh, afternoon, sorry, um, and was buried on the Friday evening, physically came back to life by the Sunday morning. Uh, he left his tomb empty. He appeared to a whole number of his followers before then returning to heaven about 40 days later. That's what I believe. I'll just, I'll leave that with you for a second. And again, for some of you might be, Yes, and tell me something I, I didn't know. If you're a Christian, that stuff there is just, yeah, well, that's what we believe. That's what Christianity is. But if you're not a Christian, or maybe if you have been a Christian, but you're thinking, wait a minute, I'm just taking a step back and I'm looking at this. Is this really something I really want to get into or keep going with? Actually, there's some pretty extreme statements in there. And particularly in the light of kind of fraudsters like Pastor Lucao. That might sound like a really hard claim to support, but what I'd like to do is explain why I believe that the resurrection of Jesus was real. Actually, I want to go a bit further than that. I don't want to just explain why I believe it was real, like it's one of many facts of history like many others. I don't want to just do that. I also would like to explain why, and in the words of the song we just sung, I would like to build my life around this historical uh, event as well. Actually, that's not all I'd like to do. I'd like to go even further now. I want to explain not just why I believe this event happened and why I build my life about it, but I want to go one stage further. And I want to argue for any of you who are here from a Christian background, from a different religious background, from uh, a not religious background at all, that actually I think you should believe this and build your life around it too. So I've got some work to do today, haven't I? (laughs) And so I'm not going to do it on my own, as we normally do in big questions mornings. I've got some friends who are going to help me a little bit later. And we have a little bit of a a panel panel of people who are going to give some of their experiences in this as well. That's going to happen later. Uh, But it's all building towards as well. Uh, We're not going to have ages for this, but we'll have at least 10 minutes uh, for questions from the floor. Um, The floor being here, or the seats, I should probably say. You have on your seats uh, some pieces of paper and little pens that have at least, oh no, the red ones usually work, the little blue ones are completely hopeless. But um, uh, please feel free as we're going along, we will have time for questions, and we're going to do that quite quickly, so get these in, be writing questions as you're going along, or you can text them in uh, there, we will hopefully have time for at least one just from the floor as well, so you know we're not just kind of <laughs> cherry-picking the ones we want to answer. Uh, we want to be, we want to start a conversation. There's not enough time to really get into that loads, but we would definitely like to do that. So please be writing that as you go along, that we're much more likely to answer questions that are sent to us. <laughs> You're not messing around over there, what's going on? It's Nate, isn't it? Oh, I knew it. Um, um, it. We're much more likely to answer questions that are given us before the talk finishes. I know that sounds funny, but if you could just be texting them as we go, works for everyone okay here's my plan here's what I want to do I want to give one objection address one objection to the resurrection and then I would like to give four pieces of evidence uh, for the resurrection it's as simple as that does that sound okay yes good you all sound very pensive Uh, and that's the right spirit to be in looking at this okay so the objection let's deal with this first the objection is this the resurrection couldn't have happened resurrection of Jesus that is because resurrections are impossible Resurrection of Jesus couldn't have happened because resurrections are impossible. And I think this is the objection that lies behind most people's initial response to the resurrection. And I think it's also the uh, objection that lay behind people's response to the Pastor Lucao stunt. 
You see, I don't think if you followed the kind of YouTube comments and the Twitter comments about that, that, um, uh, that publicity stunt, it wasn't the bad acting or the over-theatricality or the exploitative nature of it that really got people going. I think what led to the ridicule was simply this. This guy, has, he's acted this out badly and he's done it all, but why is he acting out such a preposterous claim? I mean, he's claiming something that is completely, we all know, baseline of humanity, dead people don't rise again. What a fool. Well, it's, it's a crazy thing to do. And the assumption of most of the ridicule was, no, of course this couldn't have happened because resurrections are completely impossible. And my question would be, is a man coming, or a woman for that matter, coming back from the dead, is that actually impossible? When you think about it, what, how do you think of the word impossible and possibility? I mean, how does that work in your, in your world? Is a person coming back from the dead actually impossible? Now, it might sound strange uh, for me to say this. I would answer kind of in a sense, yes, it is, in a sense. But I, I do need to define that sense. I, I'd put it like this. I think an event like this, like an, a physical resurrection, is naturally impossible. If we were to only consider natural causes, I mean, such an event could not happen. I think that that would be fair. So at least that's where I'd be on the, on the matter. But notice, that is only saying that it's impossible if one condition holds, and that is if we are only allowed to consider natural causes. Now, if you assume, and, f- and for many in our society, this would be the assumption, that the natural world is all there is, and we can only, the, the only things that exist are material things, things that we can experience with our five senses. Uh, if you uh, believe that, if you subscribe to that view, yes, this is an impossible event. Now, if you subscribe to that view, you may be happy or sad to realize this. You have a name, not given by me, not given by Christians. Philosophers are probably responsible for this, okay? You are, and I think it's a fitting name, a naturalist, okay? I don't know if you like that name or not, but that's the name that you get, okay? And it's kind of fitting. You only believe in the natural world, you're a naturalist. And uh, I'd like to say, if you are a naturalist here, whether you like the title or not, uh, good news. That is a credible viewpoint, okay? It's a a credible viewpoint. Particularly in our society uh, today, many would hold uh, that kind of uh, view. However, there is another viewpoint. There is a different way of looking at the world. And that would be, I suppose if we want to give it a name, and again, it's given a name, we need fair names on each side, don't we? Is supernaturalism. And that would be the view that there is stuff beyond the stuff. I suppose we could put it like that. There, there, are, there are types of things that are different to material types of things. Basically, the natural world is not all there is. There is supernatural reality too. And I know, because we're in a church, and most of you guys are part of the church, there would be supernaturalists here. And supernaturalists, got some good news for you. You have a credible viewpoint as well. In fact, if we were to take a survey of human beings throughout history and in the world today, uh, in either of those things, actually, uh, the second of those views would, would be far more popular among human beings than the first of those views. Now, I'm not going to try today to prove supernaturalism. I'm a supernaturalist. As again, you, you, you would probably be aware. Um, I'm not going to try to prove supernaturalism over naturalism. I wonder if even that, the prove word can be used in that sort of thing. Um, but what I want to do, really, is simply encourage you that it is not, if you're a naturalist, it is not obviously true that miracles can't happen because it's not obviously true that naturalism is correct. It could be, and maybe you've not considered this before, that there is a spiritual reality that lies behind the world and the way we experience things, 
and in many ways make sense of the world that we experience. And if that's the case, surely it's possible that those forces could interact and tinker with what's going on in the world and the laws of nature to such that they can intervene and sort of shift things slightly at individual points. And miracles, even incredible miracles like resurrections, could possibly happen. Sure, that's possible. Now, what I'm not saying is that therefore every claim to a miracle is true. But what I think it means is we need to come to miracle claims with an open mind and assess them on a case-by-case basis. Now, when you think of that, there have been uh, there have been millions of those claims throughout history, millions and millions of claims to miracles throughout history, um, and most of them, or at least a good number of them, are far more plausible than Pastor Luke Howes on our uh, in, in the Twitter video, or the video that went viral a short while ago. But I'm not going to go for millions of miracle stories today. I'm not even going to go for a few miracle stories today. I want to focus on one miracle story today and one resurrection story, and that's the resurrection of Jesus. And hopefully, if you've gone with me so far, it enables us to be able to then look at the evidence and say, okay, then, let's have a look at what it, what it says, okay? Objection, talked about. Whether I've dealt with it, you can come to that in the questions. But now let's go on to the pieces of evidence. I have four pieces of evidence. Now, just to give this a bit of a... Uh, uh, a prologue, um, we're about to delve deep into the realms of ancient history. Okay, uh, that noise, but I don't know what it meant really, but it might be shock. No one's run out at this point. Who's into ancient history? Who likes this sort of stuff? Okay. <laughs> Smattering, okay, fair enough. For the rest of you, we're not delving. I lied. I mean, we're not delving into ancient history at all. We're going to do a courtroom drama, okay? So either if you're in ancient history, we're doing ancient history. Otherwise, we're doing a courtroom drama. And I've always wanted to say this, uh, which shows like how, how, to, how to get away with murder and CSI and things like this. Let us go to Exhibit A. Start with Exhibit A. Exhibit A, here we have it. Uh, exhibit A is uh, a passage from Tacitus, Cornelius Tacitus' Annals, uh, chapter 15, verse uh, 44. Um, you can have a little look at that. I'm not going to read it all out to you. I'll come to the best bit in a minute, or the bit I want to talk about anyway. Um, but I'll give a bit of context. This passage is really dear to me because it kind of validates about, I don't know, about six years of my life in that I studied Latin at school. Uh, and I didn't just study it down the school. I did it at GCSE and I did it at A-level, okay? Um, and for ever since I've been thinking, how can I get those years of my life back? How can they mean anything to me? <laughs> but at least I got this because I translated this in my Latin A-level. And I remember the day we did this in class. We were studying Tacitus' Annals uh, and we came to this. And it was an interesting day because it was the first time in my life as a young Christian that my Christian world, my Christian beliefs here, had intersected with my, at that point, very basic knowledge of history. The two things came together, as you'll, you'll see here. Jesus is mentioned here in a piece of history. Let's just give you a bit more context on this guy, Cornelius Tacitus. You'll be glad to hear, for those of you who didn't put their hands up a minute ago, you don't need to know much stuff about Tacitus. Like, just generally, you don't. But two things may help us here, okay? First thing is this. Tacitus uh, is a renowned uh, Roman historian. In fact, he's one of the greatest Roman historians uh, by most people's calculation. Without this guy, we would know nothing or very little about the colorful characters like Caligula. Okay, you know that guy? Colourful would be one word for him. Nero, uh, very, again, colourful would be another word for him. We know not very little about them because he's the main source for those guys. Um, we'd also know much, much less about how the Romans conquered Britain. 
which I kind of like, I'm like, boo Romans. Then I'm like, well, no, that probably means I am kind of Roman. So I don't know whether, how I feel about that. But Tacitus gives us most of the information we have on that as well. So if you'd like to get rid of this and say, yeah, he probably didn't, didn't check his sources, or just went along with what people said, well, actually, you're probably going to need to get rid of most of what you know about the ancient world, particularly in the first century in the Roman Empire. Okay, so with that said, then, what does he say? Now, there's a bit in bold, which is hard to see, but I'm just going to focus on on this bit. This is uh, just to give again, what's this? What's going on Uh, in 64 AD? There was the Great Fire of Rome. Okay, Um, but we need that number in a minute. So the Great Fire of Rome happened in 64 AD. The Great Fire of Rome happened in. Stock that. We'll come back to it in a minute. Okay, 64 AD. Uh, Nero probably, according to Tacitus, burnt his own city down because he was loopy. Um, but when this was found out, he thought um, he was clever enough to realise you don't want to be the emperor like who's burnt your own capital city down. So his clever scheme was to blame the Christians for it. Okay, and this is where we get this reference here. Uh, they were called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin. No prizes to know who that is. Jesus Christ, that's Jesus we're talking about. He suffered the extreme penalty, that is execution, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, who is Pontius Pilate from the biblical account. Here we have history, ancient history, overlapping with the biblical account and endorsing very skeletal, bare bones of what was happened, but exactly what the Gospels and the, the, the other books of the New Testament would, um, would speak to us about. One other thing, though, we've got to notice about this is um, about Tacitus. The only other fact you need to know is um, he's not very keen on Christians on the whole. He didn't really want them to be blamed for burning Rome, but he, he just doesn't like them. So anyone to the audience, what does he call Christians in this? He gives has a couple of names for them. For us, it's nice. Or Christianity. What does he call Christianity? Yeah, is that's in there, I think, somewhere. Any others? The evil. He calls Christianity the evil. That's pretty damning, really. The best he's got is mischievous superstition. That's the best we've got here. He's not a fan of Christianity. If Tacitus knew that I was using his own writing to propagate Christianity 2,000 years later, he would be not a happy bunny, okay? Now, that's important because, again, if you, uh, you want to say, well, why did he write this? This isn't because he wants to paint Christians in a good light. Why is he doing it? Well, presumably, why did any of his history? Because there were certain things that happened that everyone knew happened that had an effect on the world around him, and therefore he needed to record them. Now, you might be scouring it thinking, yes, but we're talking about the resurrection today, and that's not mentioned here at all. You're right, correct. It's not even mentioned a claim of the resurrection in this particular passage, but what this is doing here, which I think is really important, it sets our discussion of the resurrection in the realm of history. And that is vital. And it's vital for this reason. Many people would avoid discussing uh, questions like, did Jesus rise from the dead? That kind of question. They'd avoid it because they say, okay, that is a spiritual claim. And spiritual claims operate very different from normal claims. Those are just different things. So I'll give you an example. A normal claim. Here's my normal claim. The roast chicken is cooked. Okay? The roast chicken is cooked. That's a kind of normal claim. Now, let's ask again to you guys. I'm not saying that's true or false. It depends on what chicken you're talking about. But how would you find out whether that statement was true for any given roast chicken? Test it. Well, what did you do? <laughs> see what comes out of it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's the knife trick, isn't there, where you put the knife in and see is it red inside. I'm not a chef, as you may know. <laughs> any, other, any other ideas to test it? 
You could eat it, couldn't you? So I, I recommend the first. They, at the north, they were, north side, when they did this, they were like, eat the chicken. Like, oh, I tried that, didn't go very well. Um, but the deal is, with normal claims like that, we, whether they're true or false isn't the issue, but we know how to find out whether they're true or false. We know how to verify them or falsify them. And people say, well, that's, not the, that's the case for normal claims. You can find the evidence and work it out. For spiritual claims, it's not as simple as that. They kind of rely on feelings or magic or something, but it's not really about evidence. And therefore, let's just keep the two separate and just talk about normal claims, shall we? I think many would, would think like that. Now, whether we can make that distinction for other religious claims, that's a different talk. But when it comes to the claim, Jesus rose from the dead, that is certainly not the case. You can't do that split. Because you see, this is essentially a historical claim. Like, did Julius Caesar invade Britain? Or did England win the World Cup in 1966? It's, it's on a level like that, and therefore it's testable in the same way that any historical claim is testable. And therefore, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we have Exhibit A. Let us move to Exhibit B, because we need to go further. Exhibit B is another uh, H piece of writing. This is from a letter, extract from a letter from a guy called Saul of Tarsus, often just referred to as Paul, a bit snappier, um, uh, to a community of Christians, early Christians, in a Greek uh, city, the Greek city of Corinth. And many of you will have seen this before. Where may you have seen this passage before? It's in the New Testament of the Bible. Yes, this is a piece of writing from the Bible. And uh, the more skeptical among you might be saying, wait a minute, you can't put forward a piece of evidence from your own holy book to like back up uh, the most important thing in your whole religion. This is a completely circular argument. What's going on here? So, uh, and I recognize that, so I'd like us to do something that's difficult. And for the, those who are probably slightly more skeptical, this won't be difficult. For the rest of you, this will be really hard. I would like you guys, I wish I had a men in black thing here for you. Forget this is in the Bible. <laughs> okay, just treat this not as a piece in the Bible. Can we just try to treat this as purely a historical artifact? I know most of you can't do that, but let's just try doing that, okay? Because... Whatever the spiritual significance of this passage, and for me personally, this is a very sp spiritually significant passage, everyone, whether they're Christians or not Christians, who study this stuff pretty much would agree on a whole number of things about this extract. And they'd be these. This is a real letter. It's written from a real person, Paul or Saul of Tarsus. It's written to a real community that really existed in Corinth. And it was written in almost certainly 55 AD. Okay. Now that last number is the one I think is incredibly important here. 55 AD is 20 years after Jesus died. 20 years. That's an incredibly short amount of time. Now you see where I'm going with this in a minute, but now let's get that number down a bit because we can definitely do that as well. Look what it says. For what I received, Paul writes, I passed on to you. Okay, that means... That we can go back a bit because he's reminding them of something he's already taught them, isn't he? He said, I told you this a while ago. So 20 years, we're going back a bit now. But even more than that, he received it even before he first told them it. So we're moving this really close now. This is getting really close. But what, what does he mean? For what I received. That's, that's an odd thing to say about what we're going to see in a minute, which is a, is a belief. What I received. Well, um, Almost all the scholars, again, on this, the uh, big brains with that, that who know about ancient texts, would say that this bit after the colon, which I'll read in a second, uh, you can hardly see the colon, but after of first importance, that bit is essentially one of the very, very first Christian creeds that we have in existence. 
Think back to this sort of time. This is not a writing-based culture. Uh, this is a culture where many people would not be literate, uh, but also oral traditions were handed down much more than they are today. And therefore, this would have been a statement that the very first Christians would have learnt, they would have memorized, and they would have told other people. Okay? And this is what it was. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and here we have it, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He appeared to, see first, appeared to these people, he appeared to these people, okay? Now, because of this, because of the moving back thing, most scholars, Christians and non-Christians, would say this, this creed dates from maximum five years after Jesus died. So we're talking about the 30s AD. Again, just think about that for a second, because that's massively important. And I think undermines one of the key objections to the resurrection that people have. Because the easiest way to dismiss the resurrection of Jesus would be to say, this is a belief that it came along a bit later. And uh, someone about 100 years later kind of hooked onto it. They found that guy and there was a guy in history who did some stuff pretty cool. You know what? He came back from the dead. He rose again from the dead and let's base our lives on him. Now, by that point, You've got no one alive who can testify to that. You've got no one who can verify it, really. And then that statement really does come into the spiritual statements category of, well, who knows? It's superstition, really. And therefore, um, we can't really, it's just a bit far-fetched. But that's just not an option. We don't have that option with the claim Jesus rose from the dead. That claim was being circulated widely within five years of Jesus dying. Now, so therefore, we've had two pieces of evidence, and we know three things, I think, pretty, pretty strongly. Jesus was a real person. Jesus was executed in Jerusalem under Pontius Pilate. That has to be between 25 and 35 AD. And about five years after Jesus' death, his followers believed and were spreading the belief that Jesus physically rose from the dead. We have those three things so far, okay? But so what? Alf Lacau's followers were tweeting about his so-called resurrection um, within seconds, I imagine, of the, the publicity stunt. So we need a bit more. So let's go on now to exhibit C uh, that we have, which is not one exhibit. It's kind of a few that are bump, bumped together, but, but under the heading of the growth uh, of the early church. And hopefully you'll see how this fits together now. Um, you see, it wasn't just the claim was being made uh, very soon after Jesus died. But the claim that Jesus rose again led to such a level of acceptance of the message of Christianity that the birth of Christianity is an, a, a sociological phenomenon like no other. Let's go, guys. Good news for you non-historians here. This may be the last time you ever hit, need to hear the name Ta Cornelius Tacitus again. <laughs> okay, that's you. But one more thing from here. Let's just remember back to what he said. How do we know this? Well, Cornelius Tacitus, 64 AD. We got that, didn't we? The great fire of Rome is in... 64 AD, brilliant. Now, 64 AD, he said, right, Nero's rounding up all these Christians, left, right, and center. Um, but how many? He's reasonably imprecise, but he says this. In Rome, there was an immense multitude of Christians in 64 AD. 64 AD is 30 years after Jesus died, 1,500 miles away, in a world with very little communication or transport. That is very, very impressive. That's 30 years after. You think, yeah, things often have a good start, don't they? Did it kind of just settle down a little as time went on? Well, let's go forward a little bit further, and it's on there as well. 300 AD, sociologist Rodney Stark, um, and this is a conservative figure, would say by then there's 5 to 7.5 million Christians uh, in the Roman Empire. Now, what's it? really important to stress at this point is that movements have grown quickly over time. They have, obviously, obviously have, but usually two factors are present. 
One would be political power would be present. So the, the government hooks onto something and goes, oh, well, well, you can ride on the crest of government approval and endorsement, and that gets things a certain way. Or possibly, slightly more direct uh, way of doing it is spreading uh, beliefs by the sword, by violence, saying, if you don't believe this, we will kill you or maim you or take your stuff or something like that, okay? Now, it's really important to know that at this point in history, neither of those things were ever present in the growth of Christianity. Um, I'm fully aware that as time went on, yes, Christianity's uh, history is checkered uh, in both of these regards. But after 300 AD, as regards government power and authority, uh, Christianity was, was almost universally marginalized. Christians were persecuted and often tortured and killed. So they're not riding on a crest of government approval. And up to 300 AD, it did change. Uh, I'd say in many ways, sadly, but up to that point, pretty much every Christian we can find was a pacifist up until about this, this sort of time. So they're not going around uh, spreading the, the faith by the sword. Now, therefore, this is an absolutely unprecedented growth of a movement. Now, let's contrast this again, then, with the modern-day resurrection we saw, uh, I keep referring to. Uh, Pastor Alf Lacau is about to find out that making very public uh, very specific claims about miracles <laughs> is an incredibly risky business. I think he's finding that out probably about now. Because what happens is, if you make claims like this, people, which are really out there, people are going to check them out, aren't they? Which is what has happened for the last month around the world. And not just people talking, but people going, I'm going to go to that funeral parlor and find out where you got that casket from. I'm going to influence, I'm going to interview Elliot and find out what the story was there. You find those things out. It's a risky business uh, to do that sort of thing. And I, I, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I've got a good feeling about it that uh, that resurrection video is going to significantly dent Pastor Alf Lukau's uh, long-term growth as a minister in what he's wanting to do. Might not do massively, but it's certainly not going to make it spiral, is it? I hope that would be the case. Now, the claims that Jesus rose from the dead were not obviously circulated via YouTube and Twitter, but we're talking in the very similar realm. The same principle holds. If you make public claims as weighty as this guy rose from the dead, particularly when you then say, and then base your whole life around it, even though the authorities are going to kill you, well, you know what? People are going to check that out. Paul makes this even worse for himself, because you may have noticed this in 1 Corinthians. He, he says, kind of, I know this is a tall order. I know this is hard to believe, but what do you need to do? There are 500 people who saw him resurrected. Just go and talk to them. That's what Paul says. Is that if that's a bluff, that is an incredibly risky bluff. And I would suggest as a bluff, it would have led to the uh, extinction or at least the slow demise of Christianity. But it didn't. It was the foundation of the, the, the fastest growing movement in the history of movements. Now, whatever you think about the resurrection, if you don't think Jesus physically rose from the dead, you have to give an explanation of what is the alternative event that happened to make that happen. And I'd be really interested in the questions in a few minutes. If you've got any other scenarios you'd like to give us that would fit the evidence we know from history, it would be good to consider those uh, sort of things. Because I think it's very difficult on the base of that stuff to explain uh, what's going on, at least by, and unless you seriously entertain the possibility that amazing as it seems, Jesus did actually physically rise from the dead. 